in Atlanta, Georgia. This is Adam Hogue and WGN Sports Central getting ready for the Super Bowl on WGNRadio.com. Welcome in, Adam Hogue at Radio Row. This is Sports Central. Things picking up here in Atlanta on day two. It's getting a little bit busier here in the media center, the Georgia World Convention Center. Uh, I think that's the name of it. It has like four different names. Uh, but I will say, everything down here in Atlanta, everyone's complaining about the weather, which everyone loves to do. It's raining today, so they closed the schools, um, <laughs> which I wish I was lying about, but it's true. I know everyone back in Chicago is dealing with much tougher uh, situation with the weather uh, here in Atlanta. Uh, it's just a matter of everyone getting around. I know some events around town were closed today, some outdoor events with concerts and things like that, but we're inside this giant convention center, and the weather can't affect us here, so we got a great show for you uh, from Radio Row. Uh, we'll hear from Ryan Leaf, who, of course, was uh, drafted in 1998 behind Peyton Manning, and uh, you know his career did not go the way many thought, and now he has kind of become a spokesperson for what not to do uh, in your career and uh, how to have a better career. So some fascinating stuff with Ryan Leaf. Uh, Ian O'Connor from ESPN has this great book on Bill Belichick, and uh, we'll, we'll hear from him uh, on some of the stories and information he gathered. He wrote a giant book on Bill Belichick without talking to Bill Belichick because Bill Belichick would not cooperate for the book. Uh, which he says actually made it better. So uh, that's a fascinating conversation. And the professor, John Clayton, formerly of ESPN, now working in Seattle, uh, we'll hear from him as well. First, though, I want to start the show by recapping some Bears-related topics from opening night last night at the State Farm Center next door where the Atlanta Hawks play. They had about 10,000 fans. I'm amazed that fans show up for this. Uh, but they have managed to turn me- what used to be media day, on, which occurred on Tuesdays, and it was during the day, and then they started broadcasting it and realized, like, okay, people actually watch this and care about it. Uh, they've turned it into, like, this big opening night fan event, and it's the same thing. It's just a bunch of players doing a bunch of interviews, but somehow they make they managed to get 10,000 fans to show up for this, uh, and there's tons of Patriots and Rams fans already in town. So this was all going on last night. From my perspective, I like to try to find as many Bears-related angles as, as, as possible and, and, and kind of bring that stuff to you guys. Uh, so for one, I found Zach Taylor. Zach Taylor is the Rams quarterbacks coach, and he's one of these guys, and all the jokes have been out there the last couple weeks. If you know Sean McVay, if you even have his cell phone number, you got a chance to get an NFL head coaching job. And uh, Zach Taylor will become the Cincinnati Bengals head coach after the Super Bowl. Yeah, not announced yet because of the NFL rules, but he is expected barring a Josh McDaniel situation uh, to become the Bengals head coach here in, in next week or so. But the reason I found him is because, one, I wanted to ask him a little bit about Jared Goff and Mitchell Trubisky working together in the offseason. Uh, but, two, I, I was really curious that game in early December that the Bears not just beat the Rams, and the score wasn't all that impressive, but anybody who saw the game from start to finish saw that the Bears were the better team that night at Soldier Field. And from the Bears fan perspective, everybody thought the Bears had arrived and had a legitimate shot to make the Super Bowl. And I still believe that to be true. But from the Rams' perspective, while everyone looked at it like, okay, they have these weaknesses that have been exposed, 
they were able to identify those weaknesses and fix them. And it's part of the reason why they were able to go into to New Orleans with a 13-0 deficit early in the first quarter and turn that game around. Now, obviously, they got some help down the stretch to help get them here to Atlanta. But Zach Taylor said that that game against the Bears in early December really helped them and is a reason why they made it all the way to the Super Bowl. So here's some of that conversation with Zach Taylor, starting with that very uh, topic. Well, it's a great defense. Certainly from a personnel and coaching standpoint, they do a great job. And we learned a lot uh, from playing in that game on the road against a tough defense. Uh, you know, you got to play situational football on the road. And so uh, I think we learned a lot as a unit um, how to handle those environments. It's made us better. Sometimes you need those scars, Sean has said, uh, to be able to make these runs late in the year. And that was certainly one of those games that we needed. Uh, it, it was not fun at the time. You know, it was a tough week after that, but we learned a lot from it and able to perform because of that game. Yeah, I wanted to ask you how much maybe that that bad week there in Chicago and those awful conditions maybe helped you guys get here. What exactly did you learn from that performance? Well, I mean, not every game is going to be easy. You know, a lot of times we go out there and we start fast and are able to play the type of game we want. Sometimes it's not going to work that way. So, again, you got to be on top of situational football. Take the points that are given to you. We had some turnovers in that game that set us back, and um, if we'd gotten points out of those drives, then you'd be in a position to make it a game there at the end. So, it was an important game for us. And last thing for you, I, I know Mitch has worked with Jared in the offseason. Those guys have kind of gotten close. What What is it about Jared that, you know, a guy a young guy like Mitch can learn from him and what he's been doing with you guys. Well, Jared, Jared uh, has been very consistent in his approach. Uh, he's easy to communicate with because he's a clear communicator. And you know, if he doesn't understand something, he will ask. You know, a lot of young guys are hesitant. They think they're supposed to know everything, and so if if they don't know the answer, they're afraid to ask. And and that's what I appreciate about Jared is he's very clear. If he doesn't know, he'll ask. And I don't know Mitch. Um, but for any young quarterback, I think that's a great quality to have. You know, the parallels between the Bears and the Rams go back even a year ago when you know, we had a good idea that John Fox was was going to get fired. But you, you looked at Mitchell Trubisky and you said, all right, here's a young, talented quarterback, very much like Jared Goff. Here's a head coach in John Fox who's very similar to Jeff Fisher who was there in uh, in Los Angeles kind of a old-school type guy, believes in defense, doesn't get too creative offensively. Maybe the game has passed him by a little bit uh, as teams go to these more high-intensity, uh, more complicated offenses that are making it hard to play defense against you, which is the whole point, right? So we were making these comparisons to the Rams and how the Bears had to go out and get their Sean McVay. And... I don't know that Sean McVay and Matt Nagy are exactly the, the same coach, but I, I do see a lot of similarities offensively in how creative they are. Uh, just watching some of the tape, you see similar plays here and there, and they're stressing opposing defenses, uh, which, again, is the whole point. And also, I think there's a lot to be said for the way that they run their, run their team and try to keep at mostly everyone as equals and treat people with respect and uh, the players love playing for them. So there's a lot of similarities here between these two squads. And if you just look at the year gap between them, last year the Rams lost at home to Atlanta in the wild card round with high expectations. They had a great regular season. They were the up-and-coming team with the new age head coach, 
with the up-and-coming quarterback, and they fall at home in the wild-card round, which they weren't expecting to do, much like the Bears did not expect to lose to the Eagles this year. And now a year later, the Rams are here in the Super Bowl. So I asked Sean McVay last night how that loss last year to the Atlanta Falcons in the wild-card round at home helped them in the offseason from a focus standpoint and if it had any effect at all with uh, how they ended up here uh, getting to Atlanta. You know, I think really every game shapes, you know, the way that you attack an offseason and whether it be a playoff game or whether it be some of the games that we won or lost, you know, you try to use the entire, you know, season as an opportunity to grow, figure out what you can identify to do a better job as a coaching staff, um, as a coach within the framework of your role, and then what can you do to help, you know, improve uh, to put the players in the best spots possible. The Atlanta game was a, was a humbling one, was one that I, I know I certainly didn't feel like I did a very good job at all, and, um, and that was something that you try to learn from, but not necessarily exclusive to when you lose games, but even when you win, you can always learn and, and hopefully grow and get better, you know, with that experience. By the way, that was the last question in an hour's worth of, of, of press, an hour-long press conference for Sean McVay. He still had all that energy. Uh, and I'll give Bill Belichick credit, too, last night. He went through an hour's worth of questions, and, you know, everyone, he's got that reputation for for being honorary, not wanting to answer questions. You ask him a good question, Bill Belichick will answer it. And he gave a lot of I don't knows, and I'm not going to answer that to the bad questions, but if he was getting asked the good questions, Bill Belichick had no problem answering them last night as well. So I just find that interesting with, with Sean McVay and the Rams and, and maybe uh, you know the parallels between these two organizations. Uh, it's too bad they didn't meet in the playoffs because I do think there's a chance the Bears would have won that game in Los Angeles, but you got to take care of business first. And as we all know, uh, they couldn't get the kick to go in at the end of the game. And like it or not, that storyline's not really going away anytime soon. So I, part of the uh, media night festivities last night, I, I found both kickers that are here in the Super Bowl starting uh, with Greg Zerline, who, of course, made two fantastic kicks against the Saints to, to help get the Rams here to just kind of get their take on what happened with Cody Parkey. So here is Greg Zerline. Yeah, uh, you just feel terrible for him because I've been in situations like that, and it's never fun to miss a kick, whether it's a game winner, game loser, just to miss a kick because it hurts your team. And you see all the hard work that the other guys put in, and you don't want to be that guy uh, to let your team down. And so that's what hurts the most is knowing that you've let your team down. But the way Cody handled that was exceptional. Uh, I can't say enough about his response to that. And I think he'll, rather I know he'll bounce back. He's a good kicker. It's one kick, and one kick doesn't define your career. Do you know him at all? Just from meeting him before, we, I think I've played against him a couple times, two or three. And, you know, you go out there and you talk to him for a while before, see how they're doing. How much does confidence come into everything? Like when you're staring down that kick uh, a couple weeks ago, I mean, how, how much is confidence a, a big factor? Uh, confidence is everything. Um, if you're not confident, you're going to have a tough time making kicks. And so whether you're making kicks in warm-ups or missing them, you, you just got to tell yourself that. I'm the man out there still, and you got to, I mean, just trick yourself, basically. Uh, don't let any doubt creep into your head. And the last one for you, because I know you were at Soldier Field earlier this year. How much different is kicking at a place like that compared to, you know, L.A. or when you're in some of these dome stadiums? Yeah, uh, Chicago is definitely a different stadium. I've had success there my rookie year, last time we played there. 
uh, a couple weeks ago. Didn't go as well. It's definitely not the easiest place to kick. It's windy. It was cold. <laughs> so uh, especially that night. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's Greg Zerline on uh, Cody Parkey's situation. I imagine fans aren't really going to agree with what he had to say there about uh, handling it all with class. I think he was referring to after the game. Um, which I didn't really have too much of a problem with what Cody Parkey had to say after the game. There were a couple things in there that I know rub fans the wrong way, but it, the, the bigger issue was the Today Show uh, interview. So Steven Goskowski, who's been kicking at a very high level for the Patriots for a long time, uh, also went and found him uh, to talk to him about Cody Parkey. Well, as a person, obviously, I felt bad for him, but uh, you know, as a professional, like that's part of the job. You, you know what you sign up for. You don't sign up for just all the all the makes. You know, you gotta you gotta be able to deal with that. And I felt like he he handled it with uh, all the class and all the professionalism in the world. I'm sure. And tell me if I'm wrong. Every once in a while, do you ever have a bad warm up? And 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 when that happens, how do you get through that once you get to the game part? Yeah, honestly, some of my best games have come from really bad warm ups. Uh, you know, kicking is just so it's just a weird thing. You know, you feel different every day, and you just got to try to keep your confidence through every situation. And uh, you know. You, you know, the goal is to just try to feel the best uh, on Sunday, and um, you just can't you can't be in this position and panic. Like, if you miss one, you can't panic and let it affect you anymore. If you have a bad warm-up, you can't just like, oh, I missed left, I got any way right. You just got to trust that you know what you're doing and that the ball's going to go where you're in. What's it like kicking in New England or, or places? I know you kicked in Chicago this year, too. I don't think the weather was that bad that day, but compared to some of these dome stadiums like you're going to kick in Sunday, assuming the roof is closed. Yeah, I mean, obviously when you have to deal with the elements, that always makes things trickier, especially you know in the Northeast and the Midwest. Uh, cold and wind is, is makes it a lot tougher for for any specialist. Um, but, you know, you, you get out there and you practice in it and you're, you're used to it and uh, you kind of try to use it to your advantage. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Greg Zerline, uh, excuse me, Steven Goskowski, because he's a free agent, actually, uh, after the season, and he wouldn't talk about that last night. Uh, working f- for the Patriots, they, you know, they don't really put up with that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, he could be an option other than Robbie Gold. Those are probably the top two among the veteran kickers that the Bears might be interested in this offseason. Uh, Goskowski is a year younger than Robbie Gold, uh, 35 years old. Gold is 36, so uh, just something to keep in mind there uh, as we head into the offseason. This kicker story not going away, uh, but it is going away for the rest of this show. We're going to come back, take a break here on Sports Central, come back, and we'll talk to Ryan Leaf, the former NFL quarterback uh, who, uh, of course, didn't have the greatest career, did not live up to expectations, but has since turned his life around and had a great conversation with Ryan Leaf. So that's coming up next. You're listening to Sports Central on WGNRadio.com. Georgia. Georgia. This is WGN Sports Central. Adam Hogue is live from Radio Row, the heart of it all, getting ready for Super Bowl 53 in Atlanta on WGNRadio.com. Back here on Radio Row in Atlanta and about to hear from Ryan Leaf. Joe Romano's our producer back in Chicago. Joe, hearing from a, Ram, a Rams coach saying that the Bears lost helped them get here, That does, how much more does that hurt you? You know, I, I can see where he's coming from, but that game seemed like they had given up. So I'm, I'm actually really surprised to hear that, that he's given the Bears that much credit. I feel like once they went in at halftime, they were like, man, it, it's too cold out there. I don't really care too much whether we win or lose. So I'm surprised that it had that effect. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, it felt like that that night that, you know, they, they just didn't really want to be there. Uh, you could almost sense it coming in, in warm-ups. And it's part of the reason, the weather was part of the reason why I felt so confident the Bears were going to win that game. I, but I, I think that um, schematically, too, though, what maybe didn't get enough attention coming out of that game is that the Bears really showed the blueprint for how to slow down that Rams offense. I, I'm sure the weather had something to do with it, but I, I think you give the Bears defense credit, too. And I, I have to imagine, Joe, that Bill Belichick should watching that tape and dissecting it very, very closely to see what they can do this week to slow down Jared Goff and Todd Gurley. Yeah, and they've done a, a, a pretty good job so far in the playoffs of controlling really good offenses. You know, obviously the, the Chiefs went off in the second half, but he kept them scoreless in the first half, and the Chargers just had no idea what to do in the divisional round. So um, you, especially you give this guy extra time, you give him two weeks to, to, to de- develop a game plan, he's going to really, uh, you know, you're going to see the Rams struggle at least to start the game, I would think. Yeah, and then, I mean, really, the, the Patriots have been so good early in these last two playoff games, uh, especially against the Chargers, but uh, also against the Chiefs last week. Well, uh, somebody who played for the Chargers, and we got into their the Chargers a little bit with him um, because he's been doing some stuff covering the Chargers, but his name's Ryan Leaf. You may remember him. 1998, drafted one spot behind Peyton Manning, busted out of the league very, very quickly, had all kinds of attitude problems, uh, and once he was out of the league, then had some substance abuse problems uh, and has re- and went to jail uh, for some, some burglaries and um, you know robbing people of prescription drugs. I mean, it got pretty bad for Ryan Leaf. And uh, since then, since getting out of jail back in 2014, he's really turned his life around. He's been here the last few years, actually, at the Super Bowl, talking about his journey. I think it helps him. Uh, he's tried to be a voice for other players. And he's gotten into the media a little bit, doing stuff for the Pac-12 Network and a podcast on the Los Angeles Chargers. So, uh, just had a chance a little while ago to catch up with Ryan Leaf. It was a great conversation. We even got into Mitch Trubisky just a little bit. So here he is, Ryan Leaf from Radio Row. Time now to talk to Ryan Leaf, the former NFL quarterback who's been making the rounds on Radio Row. We see you here last couple of years now. Yeah, it's the fourth year, um, and it's it's you know it's been been building and, and been great every single year. So you are uh, you, you're the host of Believe in Chargers on the Believe Podcast Network and Good Morning Pack Twelve on Sirius XM. How's all the media the media career? How's it going? It's it's great. It's uh, you know you really can uh, uh, if you're willing to work hard and hustle, you know you can you can enjoy this uh, this broadcasting life, and it's been fun. You know we've been really we're coming up on a year anniversary for the uh, for the Pack Twelve this morning show, and the Believe Podcast Network is just really kind of launched and taken off in the last few months so you know calling games in the fall on pac-12 network and and fox and things like that so it's it's been it's been great you know it's it's great to be able to wake up and kind of do what you love you know i I don't feel like i've done that in a long i didn't feel like i had done that in a long time yeah get you back in the football right and you can think about the game from uh you know x's and o's standpoint all that fun stuff that you love probably as a player yeah and i I like putting it this way you know I, i like telling a story rather than being the story I think that's that's been a big big change too. I love I love storytelling and, and and talking about it and 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 the ins and the outs and the X's and the O's and all the schemes and things like that. And then you know you know looking at the same thing as an opinion too. I I'm opinionated about what I think is uh, usually it comes to be with my shortcomings, what I did wrong in the NFL uh, and how I dealt with things are usually where I 
um, able to kind of spot more than more often than not. Right, and, and, and to tell our listeners a little bit about what you've been doing uh, to to help other players and just you know share your own experiences. Uh, and, and I'm sure that gives you the perspective that as you are, are you know, calling games and being around the game and seeing these young kids, it, it, you're doing stuff with the Pac-12, so you're seeing these young kids in college uh, to kind of spot those those areas to make sure they don't go down the same path. Well, you you can you can do all you all you want if they're not willing and, and open to accepting the help, right? It it falls on deaf ears, um, but that's okay. I can't control that, you know. I can. I can only show up, tell my story, and what they do with my message is entirely up to them. And I, I took that personally for a while, but then I realized, like, hey, you know, this is this is out of my control, Ryan. You you showed you never showed up for anybody in your life, and and now you're you're doing something different. You're controlling what you can control, and that's essentially what we do. You know, uh, we spent most of the we do we we block out the whole month of August, and we don't do any other speaking engagements anywhere in the country other than on college campuses, especially. Uh, in particular to the football programs uh, around the country, trying to be of service in that way. And we'll continue to do that, too, this uh, this next year. When, when you were younger, did you have somebody giving you the same message and you just weren't listening, or did you just never really have somebody like that uh, to, to help you? Um like my point is people I, there was definitely i mean when i was with the with the chargers i had junior sayo and rodney harrison right yeah. i had two of the the best professionals that there were to learn from and i just i didn't when they were critical of me i just you know essentially got butt hurt and, and ran away type of mentality instead of facing things and taking a good hard look in the mirror and realizing that they were trying to help and uh when it was when it was just too late so um I, I definitely had people in my life that were willing to to help and make sacrifices to, to help move me forward. I just, like I said before, you have to be willing. Uh, when they come up and ask you, what are you willing to do uh, to, to have this life of peace and, and happiness? What are you willing to do? And if the answer isn't anything, then there's nothing you really can do about that. Has, has Rodney Harrison become somebody that you, you talked to since, since those days when you played together? And obviously it's, it was well documented, the friction back then. There really wasn't any friction when I played. We were best friends, and uh, you know I loved that guy. And it was disappointing to see the way I left, and because he, he was disappointed, he wanted me to be his. He wanted to spend the rest of his career in, in San Diego, and for me to be his quarterback, and for us to win championships. I mean, that's that's what that's what he foresaw, and I didn't live up to the bargain, right? And of course, yeah, I've made my amends with 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 Rodney, and and uh, you know we've we've redeveloped that relationship, and. And he lives here in Atlanta, so we're gonna we're gonna hopefully spend some time together here in the next few days. I'm really looking forward to that. Awesome. So, what is your advice, uh, players these days that you might see in the NFL uh, that maybe have some friction in the NFL locker rooms? Maybe I should stop using that word. I don't know, but but I, I don't know. Like a guy like Jalen Ramsey, for instance. I'm just coming off the top of my head, who's obviously had some different relationships with players, and I don't know if he's universally accepted in in that Jacksonville locker room or not, but but when you look at players like that, what is your advice given what you went through? You know, being polarizing is one thing. Winning, on top of being polarizing, does something more, right? Now, if you're not winning, then you have to you have to back it up, right? This is the writing checks your body can't cash type mm-hmm. of mentality, right? So Baker Mayfield was able to kind of, kind of, spout off this year in terms of the things with Hugh Jackson and all this stuff. Because he played so well, right? 
if they go one and six, if they go one and fifteen, right. and he's spouting off like that, there's a different magnifying glass on that, right? The Jalen Ramsey stuff plays in the AFC Championship. He goes out and spouts off all off season. You know, everybody's like, ah, this is kind of we got a, we got a Deion Sanders type here. We got some some interesting things, but then to go out and play as, as poorly as they did and collectively as a team makes you reevaluate like hey is this is this a problem in our locker room is you know you, you take a look at that it all depends on the optics of what's going on and if they can win uh, he's a special talent but if you're not going to win maybe that act gets a little bit tiring so it's always about what's going on and how your win loss record is presenting this league is about brands this is about brand recognition this is about um, you know taking on that that uh, that earning potential it's not long, right? It's it's. Um, you may only play two or three or four years. You you better capitalize on your earning potential when you can. And he seems to have found a niche, and may not play well in the locker room if you're not winning. But if you are, it, it, it will probably probably be disregarded. We saw some things come out of Pittsburgh recently, like you know we'll put up with Antonio Brown until he's not the most productive receiver in the NFL yeah. anymore, right? And we're seeing how that's kind of starting to play out now. His antics are. Enabling that behavior allows for that problem to happen. Talking to Ryan Leaf here on Radio Row in Atlanta. Let's talk a little bit about the quarterback position specifically. We have a guy in Chicago, Mitchell Trubisky, who, whether he's having a good game or a bad game, which is mixed results so far, he seems to be one of these quarterbacks just being around him that's locked in, all in, day in, day out. You know, the old cliche, first in, last one out, all those. I mean, some quarterbacks are that way. And then I was just talking to neighbors here on Radio Row that, that cover Jameis Winston. And they're like, ah, you know, he still just doesn't seem to be mature and be all in like some of these other quarterbacks are. From your experiences and just being around football, can you survive if you're not, specifically this quarterback position, can you survive if you're not one of those guys that is just totally invested day in and day out the entire year? I don't believe so. I think you have to be that guy. You have to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and that's the way you got to look at it. And unfortunately, it's not the way I looked at it, right? I, I thought I had made it, and I was just a young kid doing whatever. I, it's not the case, right? You have to be that mindset. Have a nutritionist, have a masseuse, have a therapist, have, I mean, everything you can to, to, to maximize what you can do in this short period of time as the starting quarterback of an NFL franchise. That's the way you got to look at it. And Mitchell Trubisky has done that. And sometimes I find that guys that aren't as excessively as talented like Jameis Winston is, Jameis Winston as an athlete would probably show up and beat Mitchell Trubisky in everything athletic you could probably do. But who's going to be the better quarterback? Because he doesn't rest on those talents. Mitchell works really, really hard to hone them to make them special. Uh, Chicago moving up to the second pick two years ago was a huge risk. And I, I, I don't know if it could have worked out any better, really, for how he's performed, how he's presented, his leadership qualities. Kyle Long's a good friend of mine. And when he visits L.A., and I ask, I always ask Andrew Whitworth about the young quarterback, Jared Goff. I asked Kyle Long about Mitchell Trubisky. And, he's, and Kyle, an offensive lineman who's been around for a while, simply loves the guy. And when your offensive linemen are willing to pretty much you know, lay down in traffic for you. You know you, you know you found a good one. I've been around Kyle a lot the, the last few years, as you know. Uh, what have you come to appreciate about him and, and really everything he's been through with these injuries lately and still battling through all of it? Yeah, you know, it's you can't do anything about injuries, right? It's That's the one thing that's out of your control, and you've got to keep a, a, a positive mindset. And you know, He comes from a great family. 
Uh, he has a good understanding. He's been through some from some struggles through college, and and uh, and he's kind of facing some adversity again with with the injuries in the NFL. Uh, it was great to see him come back for the playoffs and, and get to be a part of that, and hopefully we can see him be at his prime and, and injury-free in the next couple seasons. So last thing for you, I know you're, you're a little short on time here, but being around watching the Chargers very closely, they, they made a nice run this year. Are they in the same categories, maybe the Bears, where they're looking they're looking for next year to be here at this Super Bowl event that, that we come to every season? Well, you know, painfully for the Chargers, they lived during the dynasties of, of the Patriots, and Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, and Ben Roethlisberger. Phil Rivers has been as good as any of them. They just haven't got it done. This year they had the best record in the NFL, essentially, and had to go and play on a on wild card weekend. So it just seems like the Chargers' way, right? They're in L.A. No one's really paying attention to them. Even if they would have got home field advantage, I don't know if anybody shows up. I think the bye week was what the winning solution was there. If they got that bye week, how different that would be to only have to play one game to get into the AFC Championship. That would have been different. So uh, they're running out of time. Quarterback quarterback position in the AFC West is getting younger and younger. You're going to have to be competing with Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC West for the for the foreseeable future, most likely the decade. So Philip Rivers got to get it done next year or the year after, and they're going to have to go find a quarterback in the next couple drafts. Quickly, can they survive in L.A.? Uh, they have to. They got a 20-year lease. They're not going anywhere, so they have to. They got to figure out a way to get it done, some way, somehow, because they're not going anywhere. Yeah, unfortunately, that appears to be the case uh, with the Chargers because they are certainly second fiddle to the Los Angeles Rams, uh, and it probably won't help them that the Rams are here in the Super Bowl, and they seem like they're going to be good here for another few years at least. So, uh, but a fascinating conversation there with Ryan Leaf, who. Man, it's hard to believe that that's the same guy that was videotaped yelling at reporters and had to be restrained by Junior Seau in the locker room. But uh, you look, we all grow up in our 20s. Uh, for some people, it's 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 harder than others. And uh, it's just really good to see Ryan Leaf around here in such good spirits and you know, turn using his story for good and trying to help some of these younger players as well. So um, definitely good to talk to Ryan Leaf here on Radio Row. We'll take another time out here on Sports Central. My name's Adam Hogue. When we come back, some really good stuff on Bill Belichick and the Patriots, some things I guarantee you you have not heard before from Ian O'Connor, who wrote the book, the New York Times bestseller on Bill Belichick, and did so without even talking to Bill Belichick because Bill Belichick did not want to talk to him. We'll take a time out. Be right back with Ian O'Connor on Sports Central. From Radio Row in Atlanta, Georgia, this is Adam Hogue and WGN Sports Central getting ready for the Super Bowl on WGNRadio.com. Back here in Atlanta, Adam Hogue and Sports Central. It's awesome to do this for the second year in a row to be out here and do the week of streaming shows. And, you know, if you miss anything, Find Sports Central on WGNRadio.com, uh, the podcast, and you can find it on iTunes, Google Play, uh, anything you miss from the week. You can you can replay it at any time. And, and just from uh, yesterday's show, if you missed it, we had some great conversation with Ross Tucker and Andy Benoit, uh, t- two underrated analysts in football, and they had some uh, interesting things to say about Matt Nagy and Mitchell Trubisky. So that got us started on day one at Radio Row, day two. Just talked to Ryan Leaf, and uh, I was excited to sit down with Ian O'Connor, who you may or may not know, he works for ESPN, uh, is a fantastic writer, 
and uh, wrote this book on Bill Belichick that came out, I believe, back in October. It's on the New York Times bestseller list. And uh, he dug, I think, 350-some-odd interviews, but Bill Belichick wouldn't cooperate with him, so he had to do the whole thing. It's a book about Bill without him talking. Uh, so it's a... It's an interesting book. I can't wait to read the whole thing, but some of the stories that have come out of it are great. And uh, we had a chance to talk earlier. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Even got into some Bulls talk, believe it or not. Well, because- isn't isn't Ian the guy who? And maybe I'm just seeing this on social media as like a you know a, a photoshopped picture. But didn't he like crush Belich- the Belichick hire? He did, and we talked about that here in this interview. Uh, he crushed the hire when it happened when the Patriots hired him. So uh, so. You know that's something he's kind of had to eat. You know, eat his crow on. Um, but it, you know, it, it's all part of the conversation. And he, he was around the Bulls in the '90s, so we we kind of we got a lot of good stuff in this interview. So whether or not you know who Ian O'Connor is or not, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. So here he is, Ian O'Connor on Radio Row. ESPN's Ian O'Connor is the author of Belichick: The Making of the Greatest Football Coach of All Time. Ian, I'm excited to read this book. I haven't gotten to it yet because I'm just way too busy to read during football season, as I'm sure you can uh, understand. But uh, I've I've been looking forward to reading this book, and I'm really intrigued to to hear everything that you were able to dig up on Bill Belichick without him talking to you, right? That's right. And when I signed up, uh, Adam, three years ago for this project, I figured he wouldn't cooperate. A uh, little disappointed that he reached out to some people and asked them not to cooperate. But I think in some ways it made me better. It made the book better. I had to work that much harder to get behind those Kremlin-like walls in Foxborough to find out as much information as I could about him, his life, his coaching life, the, the dynasty he's built. And so he puts obstacles in front of his players all the time to make them better. And I, I kind of feel in a funny way <laughs> the same thing happened to me. And so uh, hopefully the book is a better product because of it. So. What's your understanding of why he wouldn't cooperate? I think if you don't, he's a control freak, like every head coach, as you know. And he doesn't. if he doesn't have control of the editorial process, the end result, he doesn't know. So to lend his credibility to that and cooperate, that could be, and again, this is just educated uh, guessing on my part since I didn't talk to him uh, despite my efforts. I wrote a column about him in 2000 when he got hired saying it was a bad hire, just based on everything. Now, people find it hard to believe, and it, right now it's the... The uh, craziest take of all time, but it back in 2000, the majority of the league felt that way about him. That was actually the majority opinion, and so what he's pulled off in New England is beyond amazing, really. Given what people thought of him the day he got hired. Yeah, I was gonna. I, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you because I, I was a teenager back when he was coaching for the Cleveland Browns, so I don't really have that kind of perspective of how he was viewed in the NFL at that time. I mean, was he considered a failure for what happened in Cleveland? Yeah, he was considered a, a failure four losing seasons out of five in Cleveland, though if you kind of look at it, that fourth year, they go 11-5. and five. Nick Saban was his defensive coordinator. They beat Parcells and the Patriots in the playoffs, so he kind of had it going in the right direction. Then in the fifth year, Art Modell moves, announces the move to Baltimore, and the fans, it was, it was a near riot in Cleveland over that, and the season just crumbled. You could criticize Belichick a little bit for not holding it together, but I don't know if any head coach could have held that thing together. And it was really a, a very, very difficult situation. So they were Art Modell, the owner of the Browns, was actually going to take Bill to Baltimore. That was the plan. Because he didn't get fired until Valentine's Day. So it's just, in the people I talked to behind the scenes in Cleveland, they said that we were trying to 
formalized the move with Banks and the league, and Bill was bothering us on personnel matters, and, and he just wouldn't leave us alone uh, to deal with the bigger picture things with the move. And finally, Art Modell said, I've had enough. I've got to fire this guy. And that's why he was fired. So it's interesting that you criticize the hire with New England at the time. People, a lot of people don't realize he was an assistant coach for 25 years before he even became the Patriots head coach. Were there any signs back then that this would ever turn into what it has, which is an obvious dynasty, if not the best one in NFL history? No conspicuous signs because he was 5-13 and 13 in New England in his first 18 games. I was on the field the first Sunday after 9-11 that they played football. The Jets were in Foxborough. The Jets beat them. Now they're 0-2, and they went 5-11 uh, and 11 the year before. And you go back and listen to talk radio back then, and, and Robert Kraft didn't want to fire Bill after two seasons, but he was worried about it. He had a new stadium going up. Bill was worried about it. He told people that he was concerned he could get fired. If that happened, now uh, Mo Lewis of the Jets knocks out Bledsoe in that game. Brady trots in at the end. They still lose. But if that doesn't happen... There's a chance that thing still goes sideways, and Belichick, based on his public demeanor and, and the way he was with the media, I don't think he ever would have gotten a third chance as a head coach. So it's funny to think if Brady doesn't come into his life in the nick of time, what could have happened? That's crazy to think about. And, I, and this leads to the question I'm sure you're asked all the time. I mean, is this dynasty more, on, more credit go to Bill Belichick or... Tom Brady, because I've always thought it's Belichick right. that he could have won with other other quarterbacks, but based on what you just said, I mean, maybe it never even happens if Tom Brady's not there. That's true. He needed Brady as the centerpiece. He needed a special player at the, as the centerpiece of his program. There's no question about that, but every great coach in history, whether it's Phil Jackson or, or John Wooden or Red Auerbach and, and Vince Lombardi, they, they needed special people to revolve the whole thing around, right? So yeah, and it's funny because there's never a debate who's more important to the Bulls dynasty, whether it's Michael Jordan or Phil Jackson. I think just about everybody would say Michael Jordan, right? Right. With the Patriots, it's a different story. You know, and Brady's not playing defense. He's not on the floor like Jordan was. So Jordan's on the floor 100% of the time. Brady's not on the field 100% of the time. So I, I, I think if you're going to lean one way, and this is going to sound uh, self-serving because I'm publicizing a book uh, that I wrote on Belichick, but I think you have to lean towards the coach because he created the entire organization around the special player. I think if Belichick found a very good quarterback, he would have won multiple championships, not five. And I think Brady would have been worth an extra ring to a very good coach. They needed each other together to win five. Yeah, and it's I, I've just always been impressed with like the Patriots came to Chicago this year, they played the Bears, and you know I'm doing my normal prep for the game that week, and I'm going through the roster and the depth chart, and it's like <laughs> there's really not that many superstars here except for Tom Brady. They just keep reloading it, and and that that credit has to go to Bill Belichick for not just the players he's managing to find and plug in, but the development of some of those players. That's right, and Brady, even over the course of his career, starting in his first championship season of 2001, how many Hall of Fame players has Tom Brady really played with? Randy Moss for 15 minutes, and Randy Moss did not win a ring with Brady, and Gronk. If Gronk, Gronk's a Hall of Famer, I think even if he retires after the season, he's done enough, despite the injuries, to get in. But outside of that, it's crazy to think yeah. about. Yeah, and so I'll give you a stat, Belichick's player development and also his eye in veteran free agency because he's had his share of misses in the draft, but he's so good at finding people who did nothing in their previous stop, uh, stop and then he focuses on their one or two strengths and emphasizes those and stays away from their weaknesses. 
the uh, tying uh, scoring drive against Atlanta and the best comeback in Super Bowl history and the winning drive. You put those two drives together, you're looking at about 166 yards in, I think it was about 18 plays. Seven Patriots touched the football on those two drives combined. None of those seven was drafted in the top 100 of his draft class. Wow. And I think that pretty much says it all. So Ian O'Connor here talking about uh, his outstanding book on Bill Belichick that I can't wait to dive into. What is the one thing, I'm sure you could, you know, we play the hits with these questions we ask you in the, in the book, but what's one thing you want prospective readers to know about this book or, or maybe a story that doesn't get talked about as much as some of the bigger topics? I think the human side of Bill is one thing. I wanted this to be a defining portrait of the man and not just the coach. And it tells stories about his father, who is a, a really uh, good human being. And I think it had a lot to do with shaping him, not only as a coach, but as a person. And to show that other side of Belichick, I think most of America looks at those press conferences and say, wow, I wouldn't want to have any interaction with this person. But in talking to many of his friends and associates, some didn't want to be named. But many of them are frustrated that Bill doesn't show that human side in public, in his news conferences, on the sideline, wherever. And they say, but away from the facility, away from the job, he can be kind and warm and endearing in social settings. It's hard to believe. But I know, particularly with friends, teammates, back in college at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, some of his coaches, when they've had crises in their families, cancer situations, Bill has been very loyal and supportive and helpful. And it's just not a side of his life that he ever wants to show in the public arena. And some people close to him wish he would. So what did you dig up on Tom Brady and his relationship with the Patriots. Really, I know a lot of this was, was talked about in the spring a little bit, but and maybe how close he was to not being a Patriot even this season. Yeah, I had sources in my book tell me that even in late March, he was thinking of walking away rather than playing for Belichick one more time. Now, they've had, obviously, the most successful coach-quarterback partnership in the history of the league, and it's amazing that it took 18 years for there to be a public fracture in that relationship. But it's always been transactional, never a lot of love or warmth. When Brady has needed that, he's gone to Robert Kraft. That, that relationship is about love and affection. They're really close. They live right next to each other. So in some, in some respects, at times in the organization, it's been Tom and Robert versus Bill. The relationship did temporarily unravel, temporarily last year, spilled into the offseason. Tom Brady was the only starting quarterback not to report to OTAs. There was a reason for that. He sent a message how unhappy he was about the way his uh, personal trainer was treated, Alex Guerrero, also the benching of Malcolm Butler. He was really angry about that in the Super Bowl. So they got past it. They had to survive that moment in time, and now they're back to being a very functioning, working partnership. What does it say about this team that despite dealing with all that back in the spring with Tom Brady uh, in, in what at least appears to me like something that could have unraveled the whole dynasty, at least brought it to an end, that they're still here at the Super Bowl again. Right, and, and actually I just looked at page 455. The final words of my book, the epilogue, are about that, that in a way he lost the team after the Malcolm Butler benching. He might have lost his locker room. He's the greatest coach of all time. That he earned the benefit of the doubt and the right for people to believe that he could repair his relationship with Brady and Gronk as well, who was unhappy, and the fan base unhappy over the Butler thing. That after winning five rings and, and doing everything he had, uh, he had done in Foxborough, he earned the benefit of the doubt to believe he would get this team back in the Super Bowl and maybe right away. Those were my final words in the book. And I was really, really wrong on my prediction about Belichick in 2000. And at least I was somewhat right on that one. What did you dig up on Deflategate and Spygate? Spygate, Spygate to me was the more interesting 
Adam, I, uh, controversy of the two, and, and the one thing, if he cooperated, I would have loved to have asked him, is after Eric Mangini, your former assistant, head coach of the Jets in the 2000 season, 2007 season, warned you, don't do this in my building. That was the opening uh, game of the 2007 season, and Bill did it anyway. I thought that the gain from Spygate was so minimal. Why take that gargantuan risk? He did take the risk, and his reputation suffered irreparable harm for it. And he was caught, his guy filming on the sideline. And, and the question, I found three law enforcement officials who were involved in the confiscation of that camera. And in the middle of the game, in a security office in Giant Stadium, with the Jets on one side of that office and the Patriots on the other, fighting for control of that camera and that tape, these three guys, one was an FBI agent, the other two were state troopers, basically decided who was going to get that camera. If they didn't, after a half hour listening to the Jets say this is espionage and the Patriots saying you're stealing our property, they handed it to an NFL representative. If they hadn't done that, Spygate never, might never have happened. Wow. So th that had never been reported before. So to me, that was kind of a fascinating scene. I talked to the three law enforcement people in the middle of that. They had some really interesting stories to tell. But Spygate, to me, was unnecessary. Bill didn't have to take that risk and unfortunately he did. Well, there's so many angles with this uh, dynasty and Bill Belichick's life that you can go after, uh, so I can't wait to read it all. When you sat down here, you brought up how you were around the Bulls in the 90s. <laughs> so I want to ask you about that. Any stories from, from the Michael Jordan years? Uh, I'll never forget the uh, well, the, the, the year that uh, Jordan didn't play 94, you remember the Tony Kukoc shot to beat the Knicks in that playoff series sure. without Jordan and Pippen's refusal to, to go in for that final possession because he wasn't getting the shot. I'll never forget that night because there was a big fight. JoJo English and the Knicks ended up in a big fight that ended up almost in David Stern's lap in the stands. And I remember uh, asking Stern at halftime if that was the worst fight or brawl he had ever seen. He said, no, but close enough. And it's just so many uh, great moments. Jordan, when he scored 55 in his comeback game in Madison Square Garden, I was sitting courtside with Bernard King, who had a scoring record in the Garden at that point, and Jordan was, they were sort of taunting each other as that was unfolding. And to see Jordan, the, the greatness of Jordan captured in the final seconds of that game when he had 55 points and had Madison Square Garden in the palm of his hand. Those New York sophisticated basketball fans loved that performance, even though it was at the expense of the Knicks that he threw a pass in the final seconds to Wennington for the game-winning uncontested dunk because everyone collapsed on MJ. And that, to me, was what he was all about. So when I think back on the 90s, it's that specific rivalry between the Bulls and Knicks that for, for me, just as a teenager growing up watching those games, that always clicked. You know, my hatred for John Starks, just because, you know, those... The, that was the guy that I always identified as the enemy, not Patrick Ewing for some reason. It was always Starks. And I always appreciated Jordan's own appreciation for Madison Square Garden and those games. And it always seemed that that brought out the best in him. Well, that, uh, it did. And Starks, of course, that dunk he had, after that dunk, you're thinking, oh, well, yeah. the Knicks are not going to lose this series now. They had, a, they had, what, a 2-0 two, two lead in that 93 series. And the Knicks, if I remember correctly, they had the better regular season record that year for for once against Jordan and the Bulls and that was the year for them to win it under Pat Riley 93 and of course Jordan came back he was really upset about that New York Times story gambling late night in Atlantic oh, City yeah. and of course the Knicks paid the piper for that so it was uh it was really a pleasure to to watch arguably the greatest athlete in the history of American team sports at the peak of his powers I did want to cover one championship Knicks team and I didn't get a chance to do that but watching Jordan in his prime 
just humiliate and destroy the Knicks, it was worth it. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, Ian O'Connor works for ESPN, author of the book, Belichick, The Making of the Greatest Football Coach of All Time. Can't wait to read it. Listeners can find it. Amazon. Amazon.com. Anywhere. Bookstores anywhere. Yeah, yep. I know it's been everywhere. I've, I've heard all about it. And Thanks, Adam. I can't wait to read it. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ian. Really enjoyed that conversation with Ian O'Connor. You could tell just from hearing from him there how much work he put into the book and just finding the, the law enforcement sources to to talk to about spygate and get the action and what happened with the actual tape um really really in depth and i and i can't wait to read it so uh enjoyed that conversation with ian o'connor also enjoyed talking to john clayton the professor formerly of espn who now is doing a radio show in seattle and doing uh, some things with the seahawks on the seahawks radio network uh and and of course Still follows the entire league and had uh, some some interesting things to say about the Bears, especially because, of course, remember may remember week two the Seahawks came to Chicago, so uh, he saw the Bears up close and personal this season as well. Here's John Clayton from earlier today having that conversation with the professor. Time now to talk to John Clayton. Of course, uh, you you know from ESPN from all those years. Now back in Seattle, were you in Seattle the whole time when you were working for ESPN, or did you? Yeah, no, I, was in, I moved out there in '86. Yeah, and then I started doing stuff uh, about '94, and then full time from '98 for 21 years. Yeah, I guess I didn't realize you were in Seattle that whole time. But now you're back 710. Uh, 710 ESPN, ESPN Seattle. I'm now a columnist for the Washington Post. Just actually got the. I did. I started a column. On uh, in September, yeah. and then I just got uh, signed a one-year deal to be a columnist on the Washington Post. That's flattering. You know, I, I did sidelines a little bit for Westwood One, and then I do the side opposing team sidelines on the Seahawks games, and that's purposeful because again, you know, I want to be neutral because I'm not going to stay. Right. You know, so it's like I do, and I learned so much more going on the opposing team sidelines, and then uh, also I'm the main fill-in. I'm moving to change on Sirius. That's interesting. I've never really uh, heard of a, having an opposing sideline reporter. I'm the only one, but. I do sidelines for Northwestern in Chicago, so yeah, I, I... It's a blast. That's really cool. It's one of the most fun things I've ever done. Yeah, I say that about my, that job, too. That part of my job is the most fun thing I do. Those three hours, because you feel like you're part of the game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because, one, I mean, you see so much more that you didn't see before when you're in the press box. I mean, you get to... not You don't get to interact with the players, but also you get to see more things that they do, and then you can, you know, really bring that... On the broadcast, that's great. You pick up the strategy. I mean, it's wonderful. Yeah, I really enjoy it, too. So there's still plenty of ways to find John Clayton covering, oh, yeah. covering the NFL. And who knows what other ventures I'm going to have. <laughs> it's great to talk to you. Uh, so what are your uh, the early things you're following this week from uh, Radio Row at the Super Bowl, getting ready for, hey, here the Patriots are yeah. again. You get tired of the Patriots being yeah. in this game? Yeah, yeah. pretty much. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I mean, there's not too many more angles. And, of course, I mean, you know, if, if Gronk retires, it's going to make it even worse. Because, I mean, he's one of the more colorful guys because he'll say some things. I mean, I'm biased because he went to my high school. And so it's like I, I'm hoping he's actually going to stay on. I think this probably is going to be his last game. I think the body's telling him it's time to move on. And, you know, he'll either be doing movies or television or broadcasting. Whatever he's going to do is going to do well. And, again, that'll be if he, if he can do the broadcasting, can you imagine that's three guys from my high school that will be doing broadcasting? Because got, we got Jason Taylor who went okay. to my high school. Actually, got Joy Taylor, his sister. 
sister went to my high school, and then uh, having the Gronk, that'd be awesome. So, and which high school is this again? That's, well, it's Woodland Hills now. It was Churchill back was uh, when I was there. Okay. So it's actually changed because what happened? They expanded and they went to like nine schools. It was like I mean, four area, four little towns. It added five towns, and so Woodland Hills is the high school. And, and again, and again, there's so many. Uh, let's see, uh, Steve Breston. Uh, the wide receiver, oh, yeah. the second-round pick. I mean, he went there. At one point, there was more Woodland Hills players in the National Football League than any other high school. Why? I have no idea, because when I went there, when it was Churchill, we always said it was 5-4 and four with Barry Joncourt. It was always 5-4. <laughs> and four. It's and this is in Pennsylvania, correct? In, in Pittsburgh, yeah. Okay, so we... Uh Different area of Pennsylvania, but we're, we got familiar this year with a, another guy who came out of Pennsylvania High School, and that's Matt Nagy. Yeah. Taking over as Bears head coach this year. Uh, and of course, got his uh, coaching start in Philadelphia with the Eagles before moving on to the, the Kansas City Chiefs. What was your reaction following the, the whole Matt Nagy Bears, uh, just the way that unfolded this year, uh, following it from afar? This is really obscure. Which, of course, that's, I'm the king of obscure. But it's like, you can actually say that he may have changed the league as much as any coach in the last year as anybody. And the reason I say that is that he has two products that he's been able to turn. One was Patrick Mahomes. And two was Mitchell uh, Trubisky. Yeah. Okay, here's a story on, because again, this, I mean, I know this story. I heard it from their coaches. And what happened was Matt Nagy had a man crush in his last year at Kansas City on uh, Patrick Mahomes. And so what he would do is that he would make every coach watch every Texas Tech game they could. Now, they'd be in meetings on Saturday, and Texas Tech games were going to be out there, and he was watching Mahomes. And then all of a sudden, the assistant general manager became a big fan. The assistant coaches became a big fan. They talked Andy Reid into becoming a big fan, and they stunned everybody by tra- trading up with Buffalo to the pen. 10th pick and getting Patrick Mahomes and changing the world because now you can see Patrick Mahomes is the best young quarterback in the game. He's fantastic oh, yeah. and he's got multiple Super Bowls. So credit that in part to Matt Nagy. So you're saying that it was Matt Nagy's love affair with Mahomes. Man crush. It, what, man crush. I wouldn't call it a love affair. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, man crush. Man crush is yeah. a much better way to put it. Uh, thank you. Okay, uh, draft crush is what I draft like to use during yeah, draft yeah, season yeah, yeah. too. Uh, and we all have those uh, of ourselves. But you're saying that Nagy was so uh, infatuated with Patrick Mahomes while he was still at Texas Tech, that it, he was really the driving force of mm-hmm. why the Chiefs made that move. Yeah, and again, I mean, as soon, as soon as they saw it, I mean, everybody's starting to come on board. I mean, but you, know, you look at it, and it's like, okay, he wasn't the first quarterback taken in the draft. I mean, he was the guy that the Chiefs, because even when the trade was made to 10, you know, they had Alex Smith. Right. They were going to the playoffs every year, but, you know, what they saw in Mahomes was a guy that now could take them further than what they were able to go. Take them deeper into the playoffs. I mean, here's a guy, I don't know how many Super Bowls he's going to be in. I don't know how many he's going to win, but you know there's going to be rings on his finger because he's that good. And, of course, you know, Matt was the first one on that staff to recognize it, and he pushed it, and they all agreed, and now they're thriving on it. Yeah, so I don't know if he loved Mitchell Trubisky that much, but, I mean, when he came to Chicago, it seemed that that love was genuine, too, and and he's... I don't think it's just coach speak. I mean, he genuinely believes in the guy. Obviously, the results haven't come as quickly as Patrick Mahomes, but I, I also think people need to keep in mind that this was, even though Mahomes didn't play much as a rookie, he was in with Matt Nagy all that year. Yeah. This was Mitchell's first year with Matt Nagy, so maybe there'll be a big step forward next year. Well, think about this. I mean, I did the sidelines in the second week of the season when Chicago played Seattle. Yeah. I was on the Chicago sidelines. And, of course, the one thing that was there in week two is that he would do the 14-15 play script and do it really well. 
And then after that, he was lost. Yeah. I mean, you can see that the passes were a little bit more inaccurate. The passes were a little bit shorter. He was taking more running plays. I mean, you know, it's like, okay, what's he going to do past the uh, 15-play script? And then as the season went on, Matt was able to convert him into a four-quarter quarterback. Now, again, some of his accuracy wasn't there. But, again, considering how he went from week two to week ten was remarkable. And that's a credit to Matt Nagy. And, of course, I just, I just think that, uh, I mean, uh, I, as, as much as there's an argument now who was the coach of the year, I mean, Nagy took them to 12 wins. Yeah. I mean, you take a look at the start of the season. I thought they were going to be a five-win team. When they got the Khalil Mack trade, I thought that was going to take them to a seven-win team. They won 12. They were really good. Yeah, I, uh, I thought 10 wins at the start of the year was optimistic, and they got to 12. And, and to your point, it wasn't just what he did on offense. changed the entire culture right. really overnight starting way back in April, uh, and it was very impressive to And that's why I I voted for him over Frank Reich. I mean, I want, you know, number one, Nagy, number two, Frank Reich. So the other debate between those two teams that that has also been out there is executive of the year, because Ryan Pace, he he deserves a ton of credit, too, for all the moves he's made, and oh, by the way, pulled off one of the craziest trades we've seen in years in the NFL, getting Khalil Mack from Oakland, but obviously Chris Ballard, who actually was the second choice in Chicago to Ryan Pace has done a phenomenal job in Indiana. Well, I voted, I voted for uh, Pace 1, and I voted for Ballard 2. Because, again, what I looked at is that, uh, you know, this little, you know, you try to play around with metrics and things like that. And so, like, for example, I thought if Andrew Luck would come back, Andrew Luck has never had a losing season. Okay, now they had a defense that I thought was very suspect that got better as the season went on. But I, you know, if you look at it, go back to 2008. Uh, if you have a top seven quarterback, usually you're not going to have a losing season. But you have to have a running game, and you also have to have a decent defense. You have to have a defense that does give up less than 23 points a game. I didn't know if the Colts were going to be able to do that, but I gave them the benefit of the doubt because of Andrew Luck. So I thought they were going to win eight. And what? They won 10. Yeah. Okay. They made a wild card. Well, you look at, so I, they, they had a higher expectation than the Chicago Bears. You know, I went from five to seven with the Mac trade. Again, wondering how long it was going to take for Trubisky to get the offense going and how long it was going to take the receivers to kind of get in jive. But when you, when you look at it, that's why I put them over the top. And you think about the bold moves that they made. I mean, the trades to give up draft choices to get Trubisky, to be, be able to get Mac, to be able to get you know, two wide receivers in free agency, you know, Allen Robinson and Gabriel. That helped. And then, of course, you know, just to be able to be solid on the rest of the team, I thought as good as it was for Ballard, I just thought it was better because of, there were, these were bolder moves. I mean, these, I mean, you, you didn't see, uh, Ballard get aggressive into free agency. I mean, they did it in the draft, made strategic moves. I mean, they get, uh, Ebron over from, uh, Detroit and he worked out well, but I just, I mean, you look at the fact that, okay, uh, uh, Pace took him to eight Pro Bowl guys. Okay, yeah. what, what is like four for the Colts? I mean, advantage Pace. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, and we're talking to John Clayton here on Radio Row. When you saw the Bears in week two, could you tell right then that they might be exceeding your own expectations for them? Yeah, I didn't see it as much on the offense. Right. I mean, because they're going through the transition because, you know, Jordan Howard wasn't getting the carries. It was going to be more Tariq Cohen. The receivers were just getting settled in. So you didn't see it on offense. And again, they were, you know, one quarter of the way on offense because they were only getting the 14-15 strip drive. I mean, defensively, they looked great. I mean, you could see that the defense was going to come on. And this is at a time when uh, Raekwon Raekwon Smith, you know, he wasn't doing that well. Right. I mean, he was kind of, That was his first start. Yeah, it was his first start. And, you know, he 
he would be able to make some tackles that were in front of him, but be able to make the reads and do all that stuff. He wasn't there yet. Now, he got there as the year went on. You know, Leonard Floyd was, I think, what, he was fighting the wrist injury. Yeah, he had still had yeah. that club on his right. hand. So it's like, okay. But again, defensively, they were good, and then you knew Vic Fangio was going to make them that much better. But again, you saw the great plays of Mac, and then I'm just stunned how well uh, uh, Fuller has done at the uh, cornerback position because, I mean, here was a guy that put the transition tag on thinking, ah, nobody's going to sign him. Packers try to sign him for 14 a year, and I think, well, he's not a $14 million quarter cornerback, but he played like it this year. He was good. He did. He exceeded my expectations, too. Uh, and speaking of that, talking about the team that you're around all the time, the Seahawks, I did not have high expectations for them this year. I thought Pete Carroll did a tremendous job uh, with that squad, especially after seeing them in person in, in, in Week 2 in Chicago. I was like, ah, oh, they're 0-2. You know, it's, they're kind of going along that track, I mm-hmm. thought. Boy, did they turn things around. Well, they did this. Now, again, I went back, and again, this is going back to 2008. You know, I used the metric as that, okay, if you have a top-seven quarterback, and if you think the defense can give a less than 23 and you get a running game, then you win at least eight and probably nine. So my prediction was they were going to win nine, and if they got a break, they were going to win ten. All right, so the break was they kind of lucked out in the Carolina game, uh, and they, you know, they won that game at the last minute, and so that uh, that got them to, that was going to get them to ten, but they kind of went the way that I want, because they, they gave up 21 points, not 23. You know, they were going to be okay on defense, right. and they became the best running team in football. But it was an amazing turnaround because, you know, they went from eight Pro Bowl starters on defense to basically one. K.J. Wright only played five games. He's a Pro Bowl outside linebacker, but the only one that they had was Bobby Wagner. But Frank Clark came on with 13 sacks. They got a great play out of Jaron Reed, uh, defensive tackle with 10 and a half sacks. Uh, they've got a real big hit on Trey Flowers at cornerback. I mean, it was an amazing turnaround, but again, because they have Russell Wilson in a running game, I thought they were going to be able to do some things. Well, the last thing I have for you is something that I'm sure people bring up all the time, but by far my favorite ESPN commercial ever is the one sitting where you're sitting in the in your bed yeah. and, and your mom's calling up yeah. and then you get up and you have that long ponytail. Yeah, mom, I've done my segment, yeah. Yeah, yeah but it, that was so much fun. I mean, it was one that Jerry Madelon, who uh, was the guy that used to do sports centers, I did a lot of sports centers with, got a script. From, again, they get these from the ad agency, and the ad agency is the best. I mean, yeah. they, they come up with you know all the great uh, commercials through the years, and so they came up with this one. And usually what ends up happening, from what I find out, is that there's a lot of competition the agents are all and i don't have an, i didn't have an agent at the time and so it's like uh, i didn't know what was in the mix but apparently for two years they kept on pushing this commercial the ad agency really? and people were wanting to jump in on it and they said no we want clayton it's like no we want clayton so they sent it to me like in march uh for a may taping and uh, they said are you okay with this i said yeah i'm fine it's like you think I'm going to not trust the ad agency that does all these great ads? And so we go down there, and you know, we, we we go down to Los Angeles, and we had to do it in a you know a sound studio. But, of course, it was under a bridge, and we get over there. It's like, is, are we going for a commercial shooting or just a shooting? Because like the area itself is like, this looks a little dangerous. But then you get in there, and there's 65 people working on this commercial, in two, including two hairdressers for somebody that doesn't have a lot of hair. <laughs> It's like, okay, that's good. We did 22 takes. They felt good by the 10th take that we uh, had it right. So we did 12 outtakes just to try to, you know, they actually ran them as outtakes. If you go on YouTube, you can see the outtakes. I'll have to find those. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like I'm going to the mall on one of them. It's like, uh, you know, I, I ordered some extra uh, pizza. I mean, it's like all, all these different outtakes on it. Uh, and so we did that. But it was an absolute blast. 
Well, I enjoyed it. It's one of the best, if not the best. But the only thing that was bad, and this is bad social social media by me, is that they thought it was going to be the best commercial. And so they wanted to run a special in August. And in that special, what they did is that they had people vote on it. Well, Jay-Z, who's Robinson Cano's agent, uh-huh. has 3 million followers. I have 1.4. I didn't tweet. He tweeted. He won. I finished second. <laughs> I said 1.4 is still pretty good, John. Yeah, it's not bad. It's pretty good. All right, well, thanks so much for taking time. Uh, again, uh, w- people can read you in the Washington Post now. Yeah, and, WashingtonPost.com. Uh, and, and 710 ESPN in Seattle. Great to see you here. Thanks for having the conversation. Thank you. Appreciate it. John Clayton. How about John Clayton? He's just a machine. Uh, he's just rattling off players that he hasn't seen since week two. He's so dialed in with all the teams in the NFL. Uh, it's, you know... He should still be working for ESPN, but uh, that's a different conversation. You can catch him in the Washington Post and doing stuff in Seattle now. Uh, it's good to see him here on Radio Row. That's going to do it for us today, day two here in Atlanta. But we got three more big days coming up. And some Bears players on their way. Hoping to talk to Prince of Mukamara this week, Trey Burton, some former Bears. Charles Tillman is going to be here within the week. And... Uh, it's just only going to get better from here. So, uh, But that's going to do it for us today on our Tuesday edition from Radio Row. Thanks to Ian O'Connor, Ryan Leaf, John Clayton, our engineer back in, in Chicago, Brett Jackson, our producer, Joe Romano. You can follow me on Twitter, at Adam Hogue, for all the coverage here from Atlanta. And on Instagram, too, same exact handle. At Adam Hogue. There's a lot of good stuff up from opening night last night, so check all that out. And all the podcasts are available WGNRadio.com or by finding uh, Sports Central on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you listen to your podcast. It's all there. We'll talk to everyone tomorrow from Radio Row here in Atlanta.